As you guys probably know, the author of Ephesians was Paul. And Paul helped to plant this church in Ephesus. Um, he, he was with a group of people that he really loved and cared for. And he was with them in this mission to reach the, the city of Ephesus. And, um, and then he moves on in his church planting endeavors, because that's the kind of guy he was. Sort of did his thing, and then, you guys can do it, you got it? I'm moving on to the next mish. Um, and he's writing back to the, this church now, and this is coming as a letter of encouragement to them. Um, and he's actually writing back from prison, which I just think is amazing. Like, we always know that Paul was busy writing letters in prison, but when we think about it, like, I don't know about you guys, but if I was to be writing a letter in a grim prison cell, there would be lots of, like, feel sorry for me rambles. And where on earth are you, God? Like, seriously, I'm trying to do your work and I'm in prison again. Like, great, thanks for that one. Um, and, guys, can you just please send me some brownies or something? Something. Like, but here Paul is in kind of, yeah, despite his circumstances, he is looking outwards and he's spurring people on who he loves and cares about and he's spurring them on in their faith, in their mission, in their love for Jesus. And I just think, what a guy. <laughs> that is kind of inspiring stuff. Just the context of this letter is inspiring stuff in itself. And when it comes to this particular letter of encouragement, Eugene Peterson, probably many of you guys have heard of him, he is the minister and the theologian who translated the Bible into the contemporary groovy version of the message. <laughs> uh, and yeah, he said that this letter to the Ephesians is a bit like Paul being like a surgeon and he's going in with a scalpel into say like a broken leg or something. And he is fixing the two broken bones, the first one being the broken bone of identity and the second one behavior. And if you look at the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, they're primarily looking at this broken bone of identity and kind of trying to spur people on in this new identity in Christ. And then the final three chapters are looking at behavior. Like if this is who God says we are, how do we then go and sort of relate in the world and to ourselves? How do we then go on to be? Um, and I've been following the Psalm series around the whole of Ephesians, where they speak about this movement from identity to behavior as the flow of God's kingdom at work in our life. That when we get our heads and our hearts around who God says we are, not what society expects us to be, not what the world is telling us to be, not what our ego, our pride is telling us to be, not what our insecurities are telling us to be. No, who does God say we are? When we get our heads and our hearts around that then we go on to kind of be like this. There's a flow of God and his love and his kind of power that comes from that place. So really simply, God says we are loved. We receive that truth in our heart. We go on to love really well. God says that we are forgiven. We accept that forgiveness. We go on to forgive radically. God says that we can know freedom. We walk in that freedom. We go on to fight for freedom in the world around us. You know, when we get our hearts right before God, God's kingdom and life flows from that. Like, I love that proverb that says, guard your hearts, for they're the wellspring of life. So you guys have been going particularly delving deep into Ephesians 1. Um, and so here we're in this phase of identity. Paul addressing this broken identity, this sort of broken bone of identity. But now what is our true identity in Christ? 
Church, who are we? Who has God made us to be? Who are we called to be? And Ephesians 1 ends in this bold and prophetic and quite profound prayer around our potential here as church. Which, when we look at our potential, don't know about you, but it can be quite daunting, can't it? Um, But this is what we do when we gather as church. We sing bold worship songs that we may not always be able to live up to in the rest of our week, but we kind of sing these kind of big, bold worship songs. And we pray big prayers over one another because we're trying to spur one another in our potential. So let's not be daunted. Let's be inspired. Um, Yeah, so let's read from Ephesians 1, 18. Guys, got your Bibles or phones or how it goes here? (laughs) So it's up on the screen. Not to worry if not. So um, from Ephesians 1.18. I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. So this is a bold prayer, isn't it? Really bold prayer. It's a rich prayer. And there's so much we could unpack from it. But one thing that's on my heart to sort of share with you guys today is this kind of, yeah, is around spiritual authority. That's what I feel like God's speaking to me about at the moment, so I wanted to bring it to you guys. Um, Like here we see... Paul is acknowledging that Jesus, the Son of God, was a man who walked with a spiritual authority, which he then goes on to give to the church. And so how? How can we kind of encourage one another in that? How can we get hold of the spiritual authority that is given to us in Jesus? This is where I'm kind of heading with the talk. So we're going to start with Jesus. It was a good place to start. Um, you know, we see he was. He was a man who shone. As, a, as having the spiritual authority, this profound spiritual authority to overcome the brokenness in our worlds, which is no wonder, really. He was the son of God. <laughs> um, but we see the spiritual authority outplaying in different ways, in different ways. So one of the early accounts of Jesus is when he's 12, and you guys may know the story. His mum and dad, they lose him for few days, I think it was three days, they lose him, like, Jesus, where are you? And they finally track him down in the temple courts, and they're like, Jesus, where have you been? We've been, like, anxiously searching for you. Where, where enough have you been? And he's like, his response in Jesus' fashion is, why have you been searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Like, on the surface of it, sounds a bit rude. If I was Mary, his mom, I'll be a bit peeved, I'm not going to lie, but Jesus, <laughs> seriously. But it's, it's kind of telling, isn't it, that Jesus at 12, when most teenagers are having, you know, I did, a bit of an identity crisis, and they're sort of sporting their emo haircuts or what have you, 
Jesus, he, he knows who he is. He knows who he belongs to. And he can authoritatively communicate that to those around him. And then we see Jesus growing up. He becomes a carpenter. There's this amazing baptism that he has where the father speaks over him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is another moment of Jesus' rootedness in his identity. That he is loved by his father. And then his ministry, his work spills out from that place. This is kind of important stuff. After his baptism, we know he's sort of led into the wilderness by the spirit. And the spirit tempts him three times. And once again, Jesus just, yeah, quietly, authoritatively rebukes the devil. And is like, I'm not having any of that. So we see in Luke 4, verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answers, It is written, man does not live on bread alone. Like he's not going to take the enemy's light. He's able to shut him down with the word of God. And then we see Jesus going on to sort of live out his public ministry where he teaches and tells stories like no other. He draws young and old. He preaches about the kingdom of God and what it stood for. And he heals the sick. We see these amazing stories in the gospel, don't we, where he, you know, there's a man who hasn't walked for 38 years. And Jesus is like, just pick up your mat and walk. And he does. Or he tells a girl who's been lying dead, just get up. And she just wakes up. Or he tells his friend, Lazarus, who, who's been lying dead in a tomb for days, Lazarus, walk out. And he or comes out, whatever, however it goes. <laughs> and he does. He just walks out, like Hollywood style. This is madness. <laughs> um, it, it talks in the gospel about Jesus driving out impure spirits. Here's an example, a um, bit of a bit more chunky bit, but I think it's very telling about the spiritual authority that Jesus held. It's four from verse 31. Then he went down to to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. So here, Jesus, he's getting a reputation for being this man of authority that he, yeah, even the demons flee at his rebuke. And we see in the Gospels how Jesus calmed storms with just a gentle word. And he could um, challenge the oppressive powers of the day. Like, I love it when Jesus gets his face done. Don't know about you, but I'm like, yes, bring it on. Um, so he, he, you know, there's lots of accounts where he's kind of calling out the religious Pharisees of the day. Like an example, Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So yeah, he just says it as it is, and he's not afraid to disrupt the powers that be. I don't know about you, but I want that security to be able to challenge the oppressive powers of our day. Hard stuff, but... Bring it on. (laughs) Um, 
And we see, we see in countless times in Jesus' ministry that once again he'd retreat from the crowds to spend time with his father in secret. To be rooted in his relationship with his father and then sent out into his context to minister in the strength and the power and authority. And here he is, the stories have just kind of rambled on about. Here he is, he's kickstarting this kind of, yeah, this work where he is overcoming darkness and he's beckoning in a new kingdom where people are healed up and redeemed, where the poor are fed and the marginalized are brought in. You know, the world and all its mess we see is starting to be made new, beautiful again. And we see the pinnacle, as we know, <laughs> of Jesus' authority outplayed really mysteriously but wonderfully and mind-bogglingly, I can't even say that, <laughs> on the cross, on the cross, that um, here he takes on the sin of the world and he dies and three days later he rises from the dead. And in his resurrection... He speaks this message to the world and all the powers out there that God's kingdom has and will win out. And the story of Jesus' life goes on. The resurrected Jesus, he shows himself to his friends and his followers. And he eats breakfast on the beach, which I think always thinks really cool. He's got his priorities right. And he commissions the church in saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. Quite simply, you church, you're under my authority. And now in my authority, I'm sending you out to continue this work of redemption. And we see Jesus is taken up to, yeah, to go be with his Father, but he sends his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost for, yeah, for his followers to continue this amazing, precious like kingdom, heaven, meet earth mission. Um, and we see in the story of Acts, which is the story of the early church, these once fearful men and women who fled Jesus at the cross, um, they're now preaching with authority and power. They're feeding the poor. They're challenging the oppressive powers of the day. Um, they're healing the sick. We see crazy stories like Paul and Silas worshipping in prison and the, the prison foundation shaking and their chains being released. Like, it's kind of, it's crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, we see that in Acts, many people come to know God and church communities, they're rising up and it's kick-starting the church as we know it today. And so I guess I kind of give you this whistle-stop tour of Jesus and how he knew he was in the Father and how he went out ministering with this power and authority, which he then goes on to give to his followers. It's because this whistle-stop tour is the sort of story and the flow that we've been invited into. And it's the flow that I see in the end of Ephesians 1. That we, the church, are given this incomparably great power, it says, to minister like Jesus ministered. And we see from verse 22 that we sit under his authority. It's a powerful authority. And then we can go on and be a channel for his authority. That we can be his hands and feet on earth. And we can kind of join in with the story of making all things new. And being a blessing to our world. And, and this is kind of mysterious stuff but it's also kind of empowering stuff like on a good day 
I'm like all fired up for this. I'm like, bring it on. I look around and I see our world is broken, like broken and aching and there's poverty and addiction and a mental health crisis and sickness. And I want to be a channel for this spiritual authority that can breathe this resurrection life and healing into a hurting world. You know, I can recognize that this is awesome stuff. I read it in the Gospels and I'm like, yeah, I want more stories like this today. (laughs) Not just then, today. Please. That would be cool. Revival. Bring it on. (laughs) Um, But it's also, I can also appreciate it's really hard to hang in there with faith for this stuff. Like, seriously hard. Like, I don't know about you, but despite really wanting it, I can kind of get really easily knocked by the mess around me. I can get really easily weighed down by it. Like even personally, I have really struggled for faith for this over the last few years. Um, So just to give you a bit of background story, my husband and I, four years ago, we said yes to adopting twins. (laughs) It was crazy. And friends who knew us were like, you know, you've got a choice here, maybe one at a time. And we're like, no. (laughs) We're like, no, we can do this. We've got Jesus with us. Um, And I'd always, always had a kind of a bit of a heart even from a girl that like, I was really kind of compelled by the story of redep- redemption when it came to adoption. Uh, and so Martin and I were like, we're going to go for it. We know that it's going to be complex. It's not going to be an easy walk. That <clears throat> adopters are kind of, I know parenting is full on in itself, <laughs> but adopters, there's some unique challenges here. And, um, you know, I really believe that we're stepping into quite a significant spiritual battle that we're inviting into the home day after day after day for years. Oh, it, you know, it's a significant spiritual battleground. But, you know, I had faith that saying yes to this mad adventure, that God was going to give us all we needed. He was going to equip us. He was going to give us the strength, the spiritual authority to speak healing into our kids' lives. I really kind of believed that one. And I'd hear stories, like there's these amazing church leaders down in Devon, and they lead their church, which is obviously like a really thriving, cool church, but also they foster. And social workers were really amazed by like these foster kids, their kind of development and their progress, and the social workers would be like, what is your secret? And they'd be like, oh, we just lay our hands on our kids each night and we pray for them. That's our secret. And I'd hear stories like that and be like, yes, that's going to be me, baby. I'm going to be like bossing it in the Lord. And and so, (laughs) sorry. But I was just, I was really kind of had loads of faith for it. But I would say like over the last few years of actually being in it, it's kind of wrecked us. Like seriously wrecked us. Like we are so broken and we've come to community church in bits really like put us back together please guys that's why we're here but um you know I keep going up to Maddie who I knew a little bit before community church but not that well but I keep going up and I'm just like I've barely had a normal conversation with her. I'm just like hi Maddie it's me I'm crying again and the other day I went up to Nancy we all love Nancy right and I was like Nancy pray for me because I'm so like four years down the line and I'm still out of my depth like I thought I'd be a bit more on it by now but I'm still really out of my depth Nancy I need some prayer um and she heard me out and I was like I just I don't feel like I can do this I just yeah this is impossible like our home life is like world war three is carnage like seriously carnage and and I've been praying so hard and I've read so many books and I've done so many training courses and like theoretically I should be an awesome parent but it's all just thrown back in my face and and I barely slept like for four years this is one of our big challenges 
Um, like, we barely slept. Like, we're either woken by the hour or woken for hours. And we've barely had little patches of, like, good sleep. So it's like, Nancy, and I'm so sleep-deprived. And we've just had this talk about mental health and how sleep is really, like, massive for your mental health. But that one's not clicked into place for us. So can you just pray for me? And Nancy, she had me out. And she, she lifted me up to God. And she prayed in her really, like, quiet, wonderful way. <laughs> and then she was like, I'm going to take it. I'm going to prophetically speak over you right now I was like yes like a bit of prophetic prayer but it did sort of feel like the you know prayer went up to the next gear and she started praying for me and she's like I, I just pray that I really feel like God's going to give you an increasing of your spiritual authority and it just unlocked something in my spirit and I was just crying I was like yes like that is it that is what I really feel like I need like a lot in my journey I've tried to grasp for like the external stuff but I was in tears because I just knew that is what I needed. And I was like, bring it on. Bring on the spiritual authority. Bring on healing over my kid's life. Bring on good sleep. Like, it was a prayer where I was like, really undone. And I was like, yes. Of all prayers, I mean, Nancy was even clicking her fingers. I was like, of all prayers, this is going to be the prayer that does it. This is shifting things in the spiritual world out there. We're going to go back tomorrow, and life's going to be awesome. Um, but as you probably can tell, we went back Monday, and it was still hard, and we were still wrecked <laughs> by the end of the week, and still feeling a bit defeated at points. And, and, so, and when I have kind of a week like that, I'm like, seriously, God, where are you? Where are you at in such prayers? But I have this mustard seed of faith that actually God was up to something in that prayer, and he was shifting stuff. And... I guess I just share it with you today because I, I don't know if there's any of you here where maybe you feel like God has called you to something or, you know, you've had faith for something, you really hoped away at something, um, like f- even freedom from anxiety, say, or seeing healing happen for yourself or for someone that you really care about. Um, or an injustice made right. Like, I don't know what your thing is, but you've hoped away at it. But there's been too many setbacks that have come your way, and it's felt like this crazy uphill struggle. And you've hit too many walls, and right now you're like, I feel a bit of a fool for believing that God could actually do anything about this. But I just wanted to stand here today and be like, you're not a fool. Basically, in the end times, we know that our prayers, all these good prayers for healing and redemption over our world, they're, they're going to come. They are going to come. That is our ultimate hope. But you're not a fool. Well, you, put it here. Well, you actually are a fool, but you're a fool for Christ. You're a fool for Christ. And he won out on the cross, didn't he? And even though we know we're going to hit disappointments and we're going to hit kind of real heartbreaks along the way in this journey, we kind of... We also kind of want to have faith that we're going to see these breakthroughs. Um, And so, yes, we want to cling to this prayer, like at the end of Ephesians 1, as our prophetic hope that doesn't always kind of come into fruition straight away. But actually, yeah, we want to kind of press in and believe that it can break into today. And and Ephesians 1 ends in reminding us that we're a body in this. We're a body. We're not alone in it. We're a body. And we, with all the different battles that we're fighting, we gather around one another. We faithfully meet. We faithfully pray for each other. We faithfully serve each other. And we just, we cheer one another out in this like mad old race on earth. Because we know, we, we all know, don't we, that's our kind of ultimate hope, that when we get to the end line, 
It'll be so worth it, and it'll be so good. I don't know about you, but when I watch the end of a race, like, I don't know, I saw my friend run a half marathon the other day, and every time, like, I watch someone, like, finish the end line, I just found myself welling up. I was like, what is it about this? But I think it's a spiritual picture, isn't it, that we're all kind of running our own races, and it can be really exhausting. It can, we can want to give up at points, but we keep going, we keep going, and I feel like that line is like a picture of, yeah, when Jesus comes back and all is made new.